page 807 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. We're going to read beginning in verse 10. We only have an interest in a few verses this morning, but we're going to read to the end of the chapter. I think it just will help us make sense of Paul's words. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Literally, literally it says, I am of Paul. Another, I am of Apollos. Another, I am of Cephas. Still another, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize... But to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, you could just as easily say, sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boast, boast, in the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's, let's bow together. Father, we pray that as we come to this passage, which has so much to say about your church's unity, that you will teach us from it, the practicality of it, its necessity, what it means for us as your church, and what it will mean in the future. Therefore, Father, we ask that you would give us clarity in everything in order that this truth may furnish our mind and frame our thinking so that we would walk according to your ways for your glory in these days and help us never to forget this in these days that we have been given. So Father, please, for Jesus' sake, help us to get to the heart of the matter. Glorify yourself and please make much of this moment. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. That is what David Foster Wallace said in his commencement address to the 2005 graduating class of Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio. There is no such thing as not worshiping. This is his words. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some unbreakable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual appeal, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need more and more of it to numb yourself and to numb others and to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world, the real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and women and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration all the while craving your worship itself. And David Foster Wallace words to the graduating class of 2005 they would have a kind of peculiar weight to them because it was just roughly three years later after this commencement address that he determined to take his own life. There is no such thing as not worshiping. We are going to worship something. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, says Bob Dylan. And it might be, as in the case of the Corinthian church, other people. But we're going to worship something. So the Corinthian church that Paul planted was the church of God. If your Bible's open, you can see there in verse 8 and and 7 and 6 and 5, it was a called, sanctified, justified, holy church that was going to be kept strong to the end. The only reason was because Jesus Christ himself, verse 8, as it is for all true churches, he will keep us blameless on the most important day ever, the day of Christ, only because, verse 9, only because God is faithful. However, as you know, if you were here with us last time, this fully gifted church was a total horrible mess. And in reading these verses, 10 and following, we learn that they were a total horrible mess because they had moved so very quickly from the right worship of the one and only Son of God to the wrong worship of certain men of God. He says to himself on Pastor Appreciation Day. What was happening in Corinth was the cult a personality. The Corinthians, in giving their allegiance to mere men, had succeeded in dividing what was supposed to be indivisible. The Corinthians had very quickly begun to deify mere men, bringing into God's church division and squabbles and heresy. And what I would suggest to you at this point in our history 
is that the cult of personality is an absolute plague on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the West. Young people, ladies and gentlemen, deifying, attaching themselves to mere men and mere women in their religious marketplace as if they were Christ himself. And it could be, it could be something as simple as this. We want what they have. We covet what they have. So we follow them, feed from their crumbs with the byproduct of deifying them. Paul is going to take the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians to essentially say, stop this division from your groupie type leanings. And here's why. Question, what does anyone have? And the answer here is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What does anyone have that they did not receive from Christ? Answer, nothing. Everything we have from the best and the brightest to the average and the thick Everything we have, no matter how marvelous they may seem or how ordinary we may seem, everything we have is as a result of God's grace in Jesus, period. Everything, yes, everything. So that being said, can you see how this can guard those who excel from either just raw snootiness or arrogance or pride, and it can guard the rest of us average people from despair or being in a constant state of dissatisfaction with life and with God and so on. And since Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ, and do you see there in the first nine, first ten verses, how often Paul uses the full divine title of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept saying over and over again, I count seven times in ten verses. Do you think he's trying to make a point? To a, to a self-ruling church, to a church who has a groupie mentality, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing, he's laying down a principle that, that yeah, we live in the totality of our lives under his care and under his keeping, but we also live as one under his rule, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know your Bible and you know the Christmas story and your Bible's open, you can see there in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians that we can discover that God has a preference for the lowly. And we can't escape this. God does not follow human wisdom that says, hey, you know what, let's concentrate on powerful and popular and wealthy, intelligent people. Let's make them Christians and we'll do the equivalent of trickle-down economics. And these powerful, popular, wealthy, intelligent people will do all kinds of things and provide all kinds of resources and influences and examples and so that the common man and the common woman, you know, those poor things will come to Christ. So we make them like heroes and they're like demagogues. And those people will bring the weak and the unknown and the poor, ignorant folk into God's family. A trickle-down theology. That's not in Corinth. That's not in Cohasset. And it's not anywhere else. Verse 26. Not many of you were A-listers. Some, yes. Most, no. I found this quote in my black book. Ultimately, we don't need an an expiring example. Ultimately, we need a saving substitute. And there's just one saving substitute that I know of. The Lord Jesus Christ. So that becomes the groundwork for Paul's argument and and the groundwork for our first point. And if you have a worship folder, you can turn to the back there and you'll see our first point of two is Paul's appeal. That's verse 10. 
So in the first nine verses, Paul has lovingly affirmed them. Now, verse 10, he begins to graciously correct them. I appeal to you. The Greek word translated appeal lends itself to the idea of pleading. In other words, Paul is saying, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, I am begging you. You see, that's the perfect antithesis of snooty elitism in the church in Corinth because they struggle with this. J.B. Phillips' translation of the, of the verse 10 is perfect. Now I beg you, my brothers and sisters, by all that Christ means to you. So oftentimes when people want to butter us up, they lead up front with telling us how terrific we're doing, but then they have that three-letter word, that crazy three-letter word, but... And then everything that comes after the word but is probably the real reason why they wanted to talk to us. Well, you're doing fantastic. You're doing great, but you need to improve on this. You are well on your way, but you need to work on that. Paul doesn't do that. After he affirms them, he doesn't follow with a but. He doesn't say, you Corinthians are called, you're chosen, holy, and justified, you're you're terrific, but... No, Paul begins by begging albeit in the name of Jesus Christ, he begs them. So he's still being very gracious. And also he addresses them in terms of family. That's verses 10 and 11, brothers. So Paul uses graciousness and and good, kind deportment. And the strength of his appeal is in, as we said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me. So what he's saying is, for Christ's sake, can we please get along? And that was the name that the the Corinthians called on. Verse 2 the name in which all Christians are baptized into, verses 13 and 15. And even though the Corinthians are just throwing out other human names, that's verse 12, Paul keeps nailing them, if you would, to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul will say to them, how could it be that being united to Jesus Christ that you are divided? How can that be? That is unthinkable. So then he begins to make them think about the basics. Verse 10, I'm begging you in Christ's name that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So Paul's first appeal is comprehensive, that all of you may agree with one another. So this is for all. There is no room given for the the, uh, conscientious objector in the case of biblical unity. No one can stand back for this and say, well, that refers to you, but I will not let this refer to me. Or the church might not say, well, it's him. And you know how he is. No. If you are in Christ, you are part of the all, and all must agree. So Paul is being comprehensive, his appeal is. And so Paul's appeal is also very clear. So you ask the question, so what is it that we are all to agree on? Well, it's something very, very important. The word in the Greek for agree literally literally translates that you may all speak the same thing. That you may all speak the same thing. Speak the same thing about what? Should we all speak the same thing about what we should be eating? No. Should we all speak the same thing about the car we may buy or the house we may build? No. Should we all say the same thing about the rhythm of our lives, our apparel, our styles, or or our bents? No, absolutely not. For that, of course, is stupid, and that is much the stuff of cults. The phrase Paul uses is set in a context. 
the context here of speaking the same thing does not have to do with secondary issues, peripheral matters, but it has to do with the most central matter. It has to do with essential doctrine. It has to do with the message of the cross. That's 1 Corinthians 2.2. When I came to you, Corinthians, the only thing I said to you over and over again for a year and a half is I expounded on the message of the gospel. I expounded on the great work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So what Paul is doing then as an apostle, he's laying down a pattern here for this church and the church in every age, if there's going to be unity. Okay, so question, how can there be unity in God's church when there's so much diversity? Well, answer, there can be unity in God's church as people are thinking in one mind and speaking as one mouth in the church and in the world as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ speaking the same thing concerning Christian doctrine concerning things that are tied to our salvation. In other words, the message of the cross. And then we zip it when it comes to secondary issues. We enjoy our liberties, yes. We lose them for the sake of others, yes. But when it comes to secondary issues, we leave them behind. Romans 15, 5 and 6. This is a prayer that Paul prays for the church in Rome. And I pray this for the church here and other churches. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and one mouth, we may what? We may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul will later on write to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, verse 4. There's only one church and there's only one spirit and there's only one calling and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism with one God and Father over all things. Loved ones, could God not have set it up any better for Christian unity? So this unity of mind is not, let, let's, uh, hey, let's be mindless Let's all purchase minivans and let's wear blue jeans with gray t-shirts. Let's eat only oats, buy some property in Idaho and live together on our own commune, safe and sound. That's not unity. That's not Christian. That is cult. And Paul is able to say these things, again, with authority. He is the representative of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle for the church. Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church Apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. Consequently, then, the pattern that they are given is a pattern that we must keep. Like we hear, yeah, we hear. We, we must speak the same thing. We must cast off secondary issues. And when it comes to the essentials of the gospel, the gospel then is not some vial in which we can pour any notion that we have into it. The gospel is constrained. It's given. It's a body of Christian doctrine. It can't be violated. It's clear. It's framed. It's not a wax nose that we can fashion to our own personal taste or better yet, to our regional taste. So the gospel then is in the front of everything. It's in the back of everything. It's to our right. It's to our left. It's inside and outside. It's, it's, it's what we bleed. The gospel then is the criteria for the basis of all Christian unity. One mind, one voice in the gospel. A unity then that's based on what God's word says about the gospel. About sin and atonement. 
and regeneration and faith and baptism and justification and adoption and, and membership into the body of Jesus Christ. So, so please, please do not think that Paul is saying, you, you Corinthians, you need to get in a room, you need to close your Bible, hash out your issues, build a consensus, take a vote, and presto unity. That is not what he's saying. What he is saying is that in the gospel, unity is built in, built into your union with Christ, built into the church. And it's unthinkable that there could be disunity when all genuine Christians are united to Christ. It may happen, but for Jesus' sake, don't let it happen. So Paul's appeal is comprehensive. Everyone, his appeal is very clear. There's only one gospel. Stay on that line. And his appeal is perfect unity. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that what he wants? He wants everybody to be unified. I mean, parents, don't we understand this at home? Don't we love it when rhythm is just there and everybody loves each other and nobody's mad at each other and, and dad is king and mom is queen and the kids are just like wonderful little servants? Just kidding, but you know what I'm saying. You, you just go, this is great. May, may it never end. Paul is saying, I want perfect unity. In fact, verse 10, that little phrase that you may agree with one another that we've been use, using, actually, Paul takes a Greek word that was used in politics and he baptizes it. Toe the party line. Speak the same thing. Toe the party line. Oh, what Christian party line? What is our party line? Well, you know what it is. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen and ascended and soon returning. Jesus Christ, Lord, King, Savior, and friend. Your only hope in life and death is, is, is nothing to do with us. Everything to do with Jesus. And as a brief aside, that's why I'm not surprised when those who are purporting to be a Christian voice they make some comment that is condemning the world, but they give the world no gospel. The media gets a hold of it, sends it out, and everyone's ticked. They should be ticked because sometimes I'm ticked because they gave them no gospel. They said, well, you can't do this and you shouldn't do that. That was all law and no gospel. Or it was their religious opinion on a secondary issue that they think is gospel, but it is not gospel. And when Paul uses the word unite in that second part of verse 10, uh, the, the Greek word is actually a medical term. It means to restore, to set it right, to fuse together, to make it as it was before. In fact, if you have an older Bible, the translation for 10b that is in the NIV and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought, older Bibles say so that you might be reduced to order. Now, do you get that? That the church would be reduced to order. How can there be unity in God's church when there is gladly so much diversity? We'll reduce it down to the essentials. Burn off secondary issues. Jesus Christ is Lord. Reduce it down to God's power. Where is God's power? Romans 1, 15 and 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel is the power of God. Look at your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. God's power is in the message of the cross. I got, a, I got a text this week from a friend outside the state. There's nobody here. And she was having trouble with her niece. And her niece was doing all kinds of horrible things. And so she wrote a post and she said, I'm going to put this on her Facebook thing. What do you think of it? And it was nice. You know, it was like, well, you, you can't go out with those people and guard your friends and be careful who you choose and all that stuff. And, you know, I understand that. I get all that. But I sent her the note back and I said, I don't think it's that good because you didn't put a hint of the gospel in it. No gospel in the whole thing. And so she sent the stuff back and she was a little mad. No, I'm just kidding. She, she wasn't mad. She said, well, explain. And I explained to her what I meant. In the end of verse 10, 
It's actually a play on words. This might just be for me, but I just want to tell you because I just was so thrilled that I discovered this. So the Greek word for division is the word schismata. It means cut. Okay, so what is causing the the division in Corinth? Well, the Corinthians will not cut themselves loose from their personal loyalties. They will not cut themselves loose to their personality cults. And they will not cut themselves loose to non-essentials. So if they cannot cut themselves loose, if they cannot reduce themselves to order, there will be cuts. There will be schismatas. There will be disunity. And hence you have that trouble in the church in Corinth. Therefore, there is no hope of lasting meaningful unity in a growing body of believers. Yeah, there could be some kind of weird unity in a church that's just, you know, it's been whatever, the same size forever. Yeah, that could be there, but that's not, that's not this. If there's going to be any hope of lasting meaningful unity in a growing body of believers, if our minds and our thoughts and our missions are not constrained by the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, then there is absolutely no hope for unity. No hope at all. Alistair Begg, pastors must ground their ministry in the gospel while the people resist the temptation to quarrel over non-essentials. When this happens, God works through his word by his spirit in his people and churches grow in maturity and in godliness. And that takes us to our second and final point, point, the four clicks, right? The four clicks. And you can see there, if your Bible's open, that there were some people from Chloe's household. Well, who was Chloe? Well, she was a very successful businesswoman. She was either from Ephesus or Corinth. We're not exactly sure, but we do know that she had two offices, one in Ephesus and one in Corinth. She was very good at what she did, and she had servants working for her, And some of the servants get a hold of Paul and they begin to tell on the church. Verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. You see how contemporary the Bible is? This is way before the days of Facebook and following people on Twitter. So so it's obvious that the Christians in, in the four groups have managed to take their eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ and they've begun to rally around personal taste and personalities. So they have slogans. This is what we'll learn as we work through the book. They have little slogans, little mantras and little lines of living that they cling to. They have a groupie type mentality. So there were four parties. The first party was the Paul party. And so how do you understand what these parties do? Well, you take the whole Bible and you begin to think and you make some applications. So here's what I think is going on. There's the Paul party. And I think this means that under God, God, Paul was used by God to save probably the lion's share of, of Christians in Corinth. And if you've ever been part of seeing someone to faith in Jesus Christ, you know that they will love you forever. And if someone comes to faith under your ministry, you can virtually do no wrong. And even when you leave, your ministry will kind of linger on in the good old days brigade who were left behind. They will still more than likely hold the party line. I think that's the Paul party. Well, then here's the Apollos party. Apollos came from Alexandria, one of the intellectual high streets in the ancient world. Compared to Paul, Apollos was an Ivy Leaguer. He was bright, he was intelligent, he was eloquent and dynamic. Paul was from Tarsus. He was bright, but he wasn't eloquent, he wasn't dynamic, and apparently he wasn't to this group's taste. Then there's the Peter party or the Cephas party. So these people are probably people who lean towards legalism disguised as morality. So so these were like Jewish Christians, and this is what Peter struggled with as you read your Bible. Read Galatians 2. And so about this group, John Stott writes... Many Christians feel secure 
in a straitjacket. So, so they want clear guidelines in everything. Tell me the age my kids can date. Tell me all, how often I and my wife should take a date night. Tell me the percentage on giving to God. Tell me these things. So that tightrope between license and, and legalism is way too much for them. And the way out of that then is safe rules and regulations. And in that, they have the potential to judge everyone's spirituality by what people are doing and what people are, are not doing. So they, they base things on outward works. They glory in the flesh. And I think you understand that becomes attractive because you can understand things, you can quantify things, you can measure them. And unfortunately, the people in Peter's group can measure people, judge people, something that they had no right to do. So there's Paul's group. Probably loyal to the good old days. Apollos group, the intellectual paradise. Peter's group, he's our man. He's the only conservative fundamentalist in the whole group. But what about the Christ party? Because you want to say, well, shouldn't we all be part of that party? (laughs) Well, think, think for a minute. Think a little bit about history, biblical, maybe personal. And this is what I think the Christ party is. I think these are the people who say that they are the the, uh, spiritual elites of the group. So they say, we are not in any party at all. We, we have no time for men. We have no time for leaders. No one will tell us what to do. Only Jesus Christ. So we're not in Paul's party. We're not in Peter's party. We're not in Apollos' party. We take our instructions directly from headquarters. We are the Christ party. So, so maybe you've met these people. Everything they say, the Lord told them to do this. And the Lord told me to do that. So just back off. So then everything they say is apparently above reproach because God told them to do this or to say this. And their hotline to God, to me, is very intimidating. I mean, I don't have that kind of access to God. Not like that. I got to pray and I got to study and I got to think and I got to call my dad when it's a tough decision and I call some of my friends and, and, and family members. But these people are getting the uh, equivalent, spiritual equivalent of a text message from God. Just like that. So on the basis of pure subjectivism, fierce individualism, anti-authoritarianism, a group like this will control or destroy a church. They're always more spiritual, always more in tune, always have a better angle, always able to condemn everyone else because they hear from God directly. So they either will split up a church or they'll split a church. A.D. 95 Clement writes a letter to the church in Corinth. It's not, a, it's not biblical, but it's just a secondary letter. And he refers to three groups out of the four. He refers to the Paul group. He refers to the Peter's group. He refers to Apollos' group. But guess what group he doesn't refer to? The Christ group. Why? Because they split. They started their own group. Remember the quote? Because surely none of us are in these four groups. Not me. I could never be in these groups. Remember our quote, this is the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Okay, so our time is done. We, we, need, to move, we need to move on, but we're going to have to wait till next time. So let's, let me see this before we go to the Lord's table together. The evil one would, would just... Love to divide the church of God any way he can. 
Our fallen nature's bent is division. We love to stand out among the crowd. We, we love to tell the crowd things about our secondary issue beliefs and we want people to fall under them. But those divisions are horrible and in our divisions we are weak. Our ministry will suffer and Christ's glory will be dim. And we cannot allow this. We must think on Christ. We must concentrate on the great themes of the gospel and let them lead us in everything we do and everything we say, period. And maybe, maybe we can become like that first century couple who on their gravestone, they had only one word on their gravestone. It was the Greek word auto. It's the word for agree in verse 10. In other words, say the same thing. Say the same thing. Now that's only going to happen if we're saying the same thing about the one thing that matters most. Let's bow together as we prepare for communion. Well, God and Father, we thank you for your truth given to us from your word. Lord, as Thomas Brooks said, it would be one thing to, for sheep to worry about wolves. That's... that's natural but it's unnatural for sheep to worry about other sheep that's monstrous please give us the grace to never have to be that way in the life of this church lord help us now as we think about the cross at the table that has been set before us for jesus sake amen